Welcome to San Diego News Fix, The Backstory, where we tackle important questions about journalism ethics and give you an inside look into our newsroom. I'm Luis Cruz. Today, we're going to be looking back at an incident that rocked the Navy a little more than 50 years ago. It was a black versus white race riot aboard the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. Joining us now to talk about the incident are Union Tribune feature writer John Wilkins, Enterprise editor Christina Davis, managing editor Laura Sacalo, and we begin with publisher and editor Jeff Light. Jeff? Okay, thank you, Luis. John, thank you for uh, coming on and sharing this story with us. What's It's interesting to me, not so much as a question of media ethics or decision-making, which is often our topic here, but uh, your story is about a participant in a moment of history who 50 years later is coming forward uh, uh, and and telling a story uh, in a in a different way than had generally been accepted across the decades around this uh, pretty important moment in the Navy's history and and in San Diego's history. So why don't you just rough out the background? And then I think um, both Laura and Christina also have some questions that maybe you can uh, get at. Okay, so so in October of 1972, the Kitty Hawk was. Uh, over in the waters off Vietnam uh, as part of the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, they'd been at sea for quite a while. There were a lot of, ra- there's racial tension on board the ship and it boiled over uh, overnight over about a six hour period uh, where tensions ran high and there were some groups of black sailors going around the ship beating on white sailors and vice versa. Uh, and afterwards, uh, Many of the defendants were sent to San Diego, where the Kitty Hawk, Kitty Hawk was home ported and put on trial uh, for court, where they were being court-martialed for rioting and assault charges. And uh, one of the defense lawyers in the Navy was a guy named Marv Truhi, who represented six of the defendants. Um, he kept all his records from those trials. Uh, and 50 years later, he decided it was finally time to write a book and tell what he describes as the full story. Yeah, so this uh, 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 lawyer, Marv, I was 27 years old at the time. And uh, now he's carried with him his records from this case through the rest of his life, right? I mean, you were describing to me, he, he moved yeah. around the country, he's carried this record with him. And uh, now finally, 50 years later, he has sat down to write. T- tell me a little bit about what motivated him and the, and the story that he tells as opposed to the story that was generally known. Yeah, so this story has come down through the ages, mostly as as a story of black sailors running amok on the Kitty Hawk. And, and there's been discussion about why they might might have done that, the, the injustices they experienced on board the ship. Um, but the story he tells is it's a little bit more complicated than that. So he was bothered at the time the trials were going on about um, the way that the stories had unfolded. He was bothered by some of the unfairness that he said he saw within the judicial system as he tried to defend uh, these sailors. And so that always kind of bothered him, it raised questions in his mind about the Navy, an institution that he respected then and still respects that raised questions about fairness in the legal system, which he made his life's work. Uh, and it just made, it raised questions to him about things like honesty and integrity. He's, a, he's a, a farm boy from South Dakota who raised by a dad who 
who had pointed out prejudice uh, that existed against Native Americans in his hometown. So this thing just never quite sat right with him over these years. And he felt that he needed to sort of um, maybe tell a fuller story about it. Yeah, and you were uh, uh, briefing uh, me a little bit on some of those points of unfairness that seemed uh, particularly glaring. For instance, six black sailors were arrested and charged and one white sailor. 25, 25 black 25, sailors. I'm sorry. Yeah, they, they were, that was the original group that was accused uh, shortly after the couple of weeks after the incident unfolded. Um, and and most of them, two of them agreed to be tried right there on the ship. So they were punished on board. They were hoping to stay in the Navy. The others asked for outside counsel and the court marshals were moved to San Diego. So eventually 23 um, sailors were were subject to court martials in San Diego, and one only one of them was white. He was charged um, three months after the original incident. By the time everybody was back in San Diego, yeah, and, and the 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 prosecutor on the uh, the case against the white sailor it was a was a newcomer. It was was brand new, had almost no experience, um, and. Uh, as as Mark Truly explains in the boat and in the book, didn't really have much of an idea what he was doing. Was very nervous because these cases had attracted some national attention. Uh, he put on his case and took the jury about eight minutes to acquit. Yeah, so you got the the, the flavor that perhaps this was a token prosecution against the one uh, white sailor. Yeah, and and the the black sailors, uh, most of them, I think almost all of them, were kept in the brig at Thirty Second Street Naval Station in pre-trial confinement, which was unusual um, for for more than three months. Um, Marv True, he um, found the Navy hiding evidence from him and the other defense lawyers as this went on. I mean, there's some pretty wild things that went on. Um, at one point after one of his um, one of his clients was convicted, they hired a private detective to, um, to befriend the main witness in that case uh, to try and catch the the witness um, admitting that he was racist and that he'd lied during the trial. You know, it's the kind of thing you might read in a crime novel, you know, <laughs> a Harry Bosch story or something. And and they did that and it, and it worked. Um, and those tapes began to undercut the story that the Navy had been telling all along about these, um, about the incident. Yeah. Laura, I think you had uh, a question for John about the racial justice uh, uh, components of this story. Right. Yeah, I, w I was struck in, in a sneak peek at your story that the author that you're profiling kind of seems to raise this question, maybe even to himself, of, you know, what have we learned collectively since this incident? And it seemed as though uh, maybe in the wake of the George Floyd murder, he began to, to look at this through maybe a, a different lens than he had previously. Yeah, I think maybe he has been more reflective on that. I mean, he he's always he started trying to write this book shortly after all this happened. And then and then he put it aside because, you know, life gets in the way as he as he left the Navy after four years and then went into private practice. Well, he worked he worked uh, for the attorney general in South Dakota and then went into private practice. But so we always saw this book as mainly a snapshot in time. But then I think as he was writing it, 
um, he began to reflect on maybe what larger messages this might say uh, for the rest of the world, in particular, the questions it may raise about how much progress we've made in America toward racial equality. Yeah, the criminal justice system is uh, both, uh, uh, I guess, uh, in, in the military side, certainly in the, the uh, in civil society, is a great place to look for signs of uh, inequitable treatment, and, uh, and people are very uncomfortable with those uh, those questions. I think, Christina, you had a question about uh, the Navy itself and uh, the idea of accountability. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, and kind of kind of going off, you know, what Laura was saying is, you know, he's he's had to sit down 50 years later and kind of revisit all of this um, and try to make sense of it. Um, and he says something near the end of a story um, about how he doesn't really he doesn't really blame like the institution of the Navy for this. He, he doesn't just say, you know, the Navy's a racist institution or something like that. Right. Um he says something in there about it's, you know, he it was really like a, some a few senior officers. Um, so I was curious kind of what like who who are these senior officers and what what are what what is what are kind of his theories behind that? And and were was there any other other accountability at the higher ranks? Yeah, I mean he's the, the author Marv Truy is very, very careful, uh, both in the book and in my interview with him not to sort of broad brush the entire Navy. I mean, he still has enormous respect for the institution. He has enormous respect for people who put on the uniform. Um, he thinks it was, um, you know, some senior officers who lost their way. I mean, the captain of the ship, Marlon Townsend, had joined the Kitty Hawk just four months before this happened. He was still kind of trying to find his way, just find his footing with the with the crew. And as true, he uh, shows us in the book, he made some missteps early in terms of his um, disciplinary proceedings against uh, the crew members. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear that he punished the blacks more severely than he punished the whites for similar infractions. So that kind of thing just fed into what was already <laughs> already boiling, a boiling pot on a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, Captain Townsend. I think uh, I think it's clear from the book that his career um, was um, maybe short circuited a little bit. He didn't move on to positions you might have expected him to move on to if this had not happened. But none of the senior officers um, faced any kind of immediate disciplinary proceedings because of this case. Yeah, whenever I read this kind of uh, 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 account. From insiders years later, it's uh, it's so troubling to me. You know, you feel like as a journalist, oh boy, it's we we don't really we don't have access to the real story. Like we we and, and I think he even said the reporters at the time they they did the they did the best they could or, or something like he had actually in a way he was charitable, but he had a, a sort of a, a low expectation of what uh, journalists would be, be able to uh, get at. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I mean, the military is always a hard net to crack, as many of us know from from working in journalism over the years. And and in this case, for example, all the defendants were under gag order um, not to talk. The lawyers pretty much as lawyers often do. They don't want to talk about the case while it's going on. They don't want to 
they don't want to say something that's going to upset the judge or anything like that. So everybody's closed mouth. There's no way to get access to the to the documents um, the way you might in a in a public court system. So, but but he thought the journalists tried to do the best they could. Um, you know, they quoted defense attorneys who would say things in sort of circumspect ways that would raise questions about some of the things that were going on. Um, true, he himself was on a number of occasions an anonymous source to um, the New York Times and other publications, um, pointing him pointing him in certain directions of, about the wider topics about what might be going on in the Navy. So, um, but I think you're right. I mean, it's very hard. Um, I think for any of us to ever get the full story, especially in the in in the immediate force of time, you know, sometimes you have to have a little time go by for perspective to happen. And I think that's happened in this case with this author. Time has gone by. He's had some life experience. He's seen some things go on. Um, and when he returned, although he said when he returned to these five boxes of documents, five bankers boxes and went through them, it reminded him of how angry he was in 1972 when this was happening. And it made him angry all over again. Fascinating story. Uh, really looking forward to uh, spending more time on this topic. Uh, Louise? Thank you very much, Jeff, Laura, Christina, and John. That does it for this special edition of San Diego News Fix. You can read more of John Wilkins' story on our website, SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. From everyone at the San Diego Union Tribune, thank you very much for listening and for supporting local journalism. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Have a great day.